This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Animal protection are called out to a house where two cats seem to be abandoned. Animal protection call the police and ask them to go into the house since the lights are on inside, but nobody is opening. When entering the house, the police are met with a terrible smell. Something is definitely dead in here, one of the officers later remembers thinking when he entered. But they don't find the woman living there, and they conclude that the smell must be from the cats that had been able to go in and out of the house as they wished. Nobody had seen the woman who lived in the house for a while, and after being contacted by animal protection, her father reports her missing. About two weeks later, the police return to the house, this time bringing a canine unit. One of the dogs immediately alert his handler to a large pile of wood and junk inside the boiling room. The missing woman was now found. Welcome to episode 34 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. The disclaimer you hear in the beginning is read by Tyler Allen from the Minds of Madness podcast. If you haven't checked it out already, go do that. It's a really great podcast. And the music for this podcast is made by Nico from We Talk of Dreams. If you need some customized music... You can reach him at wetalkofdreams.com. This episode is written and researched by me. For sources, I have read almost all of the police documents on this case, which consisted of almost 6,000 pages. And I've also read some articles and interviews on the case from back when it happened. Before we get into today's case, I have some recommendations on podcasts that you can find on Stitcher Premium. I know I said it before, but I really recommend that you check out Off the Record with Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage. They release an episode of Off the Record each week, and you get extra content around that week's case, and also some updates on old cases in which new information has come up. Another great thing about using Stitcher Premium is that you get ad-free episodes of, for example, My Favorite Murder and Criminology, plus some hit shows from the Wondering Network, such as Dr. Death, The Vanished Podcast, and many, many more. Stitcher Premium offers thousands of hours of original content, 
early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need to get off your true crime binge and just laugh a little. And of course, my show is also available on Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code SWEDEN when you sign up. That's stitcherpremium.com and use promo code SWEDEN. And remember, by supporting my sponsors, you also support my show. Thank you. But enough of that, and let's get into today's case. This case is troubling in so many ways. As you heard in the intro, the first sign that Therese Palmqvist, aged 31, was missing was a report that came in to animal protection that two cats were being neglected, and the person calling in gave the address to a house in a small village called Longshyttan. The cats are entering and exiting the house through a ventilation hole. They are also trying to get into neighboring houses. The cats are very thin and obviously hungry. The owner of the cats and the house has not been seen for a long time. The first report comes in on February 27, 2017. When asked by Animal Protection if there is something else that they need to know, the person reporting the neglect mentions that there are lights on in parts of the house. The lights are on 24-7, and there's no car tracks or footsteps outside in the snow. Nothing really happens with that first report, but on March 7th, another complaint comes in to Animal Protection. They contact the police, and they go out to the house the next day, on March 8th. With them is also Therese's father. Since they couldn't reach Therese, they contacted him. The reason the police are present is that animal protection cannot take custody over animals without the police being present. They see that there is a hole beside the basement door, making it possible for the cats to enter and exit the house. But they cannot see any cats during the visit. Nobody is home, and the police have no reason to believe that anyone is in danger, so they leave. The animal protection person stays a little bit longer to talk to the neighbors. The neighbors say that the woman who used to live there moved in November, and that the same man that lived there with her last summer sometimes still stops by the house to retrieve mail from the mailbox. This all took place on a Friday and made Therese's father worried about her. He had been trying to reach her several times by calling and texting her without any response. The calls didn't go straight to voicemail, so he figured she was just mad about something and didn't want to talk to him. He couldn't even get a hold of her over Christmas or on her birthday on January 13th. But he explained to the police later that Therese was special. She could get upset over some minor thing and just ignore a person for several months. So he wasn't that concerned at first. But now 
he was concerned. She loved her cats, and they were her babies. She would never leave them like this. In the days to come, Teresa's father started looking for her. He tried to reach her boyfriend, Björn Olsen, but without any luck. He was told by someone close to Björn that he stayed in a camper on a campground nearby. So Teresa's father went there to look for him. Nobody was at the camper when he came. But what was alarming was the fact that Teresa's car was parked next to the camper. He put a note on the windshield of the car and asked Teresa to call him because he was worried about her. A few days later, on March 13th, he called the police to report Therese missing. He starts out the call by telling the police officer who takes the call who he is and then he says there might be a problem because they cannot get a hold of their daughter. He says they've been trying to call and text her for several months but without any reply. He also says that he could see that she moved some money from a joint bank account in the middle of December of 2016 about three months before this call is made. He continues to say that he got worried when the animal protection officer contacted them about Teresa's cats. And they went up to the house that seems to be empty. Teresa treats the cats as her babies, he says to the officer, and she would never leave them unattended. When asked if it's unusual for Therese not to answer her text and calls, her father says that she is a complicated person, that she sometimes gets mad about some little thing that isn't obvious to him, and then she ignores him for a while. But he is concerned that he isn't getting any response at all for this long. The officer says that they are going to look into it right away. Therese is born in 1986, and that means she is 31 years old at the time she was reported missing. When police go to the house later that day, March 13, 2017, they decide to go inside and look. In Sweden, police officers are allowed to enter a house or a building without a warrant if they suspect that someone might be endangered. In Sweden, it's called fara i dröjsmål, and loosely translated, it means danger in delay. So the police officers enter the house by prying open the door in the basement. When entering, the smell they are met by makes them both think that the missing woman is probably dead in the house. They walk through the house to look for her, but they cannot find anything. Even though it smells awful in there, they think that the smell might come from the cat urine and feces, and also maybe from dead rats or something like that. 
There is cat food in a bowl in the kitchen. And in the bathroom, there is another bowl in a sink that water is dripping into. So it seems like someone is caring for the cats after all. Then they look inside the refrigerator. And the date stamps on the milk cartons are from February. The computer is on and Facebook is open. And a chat with a male friend of Therese's is also open. The male friend, let's call him Peter, says on November 25th at 1.45pm. Don't know if you got my text. I wonder when I can come over with my car. Therese replies, oh, I'm right. We don't really know. Kind of busy right now. Peter replies, okay, then I just call the shop instead. How's everything going? Therese replies, everything is fine and a smiley. Peter then sends several smileys and hearts and stuff back to her. But he doesn't get a reply. That's the end of the conversation. Since the police didn't find anything to alert them that Therese might be in danger, they decide to leave the house. Another interesting thing that Therese's father mentions to the police when he talks to them on March 13th is that he talked to Therese's boyfriend, Björn Olsen's brother, Thomas Olsen. Thomas says that his brother Björn had been acting strange lately, and he also says that Björn Olsen has Therese's credit card and that he's using it. Björn Olsen, Therese's boyfriend, had also been bringing stuff over to his brother Thomas's house for him to keep, and at the same time mumbling something about him maybe going to jail again. This is alarming for Thomas, of course, but he doesn't get an answer out of his brother about why he would be sent to jail. Björn Olsen is committing small crimes all the time, stealing things, not paying for gas, etc. So the idea that he would go to jail for something isn't that unfamiliar. On March 27th, the police go back to the house that Therese lived in with her boyfriend Björn Olsen. It's now been two weeks and this time they bring a canine dog with them. The dog goes through the backyard without alerting them to something. But when entering the house, the dog immediately goes down to the basement and goes into the boiler room to a large pile of wood and trash. And then the dog alerts his handler. The handler moves some of the logs and are able to see some red hair and a part of an arm. They back out and call in the forensic team. Tereas was now found. Therese's body had been hidden under a rug and then concealed by logs of wood and all kind of boxes and stuff. The police also found some interesting things in that pile. An axe, 
a hammer, a package of disposable gloves, a DVD. And that's a James Bond movie with a title, Die Another Day. There's also a book about cats and photographs of Tidius. It's almost like the killer made a grave right there in the boiler room and put all her belongings close to her. The autopsy reveals that Tidius had been killed by trauma to the head, made probably by an axe and or a hammer. She is still holding her car keys in her hand when she is found. And that indicates that she just got out of her car when she was struck or that she was about to leave. The clothes on her upper body is pushed up towards her shoulders and her back is dirty. That indicates that she was dragged by her feet from the place she was attacked to the place she was found. On top of her dead body was a rug and several logs of wood and also some other things to cover her. A towel is placed over her head, which indicates that the perpetrator didn't want to see her face or her wounds. And that suggests it was a person close to her. When going through the house, the forensic team find a lot of different things that are interesting to the investigation. A calendar on the wall in the kitchen is helping them try to figure out the last day Therese was alive. Every day is marked off with a line through the date. But the last marked off day is November 19, 2016. Another interesting thing is that in the calendar there are 11 small skulls drawn. Between every skull... There is between 25 and 29 days. There's nothing said about this in the police document, but I have my own thoughts on this. Almost every woman I know marks somewhere in their calendar when they get their period. Today a lot of people use apps for this purpose, but some still use calendars, and back in the days, I always marked the start of my period each month in my calendar. My thought is that maybe Therese tried to get pregnant, and that is why she made a small skull in her calendar every time she got her period, like as if to say it didn't work out this month either. The reason for me thinking this is that the last skull was on October 27th, that is 24 days before November 19th, which seems to be the last day she was alive. There is also a note found taped to her computer screen with an appointment to the midwives scheduled for November 23rd at 2 p.m. She never showed up for that appointment. She had been dead for three days by then. When the police contact the midwife's office to ask about Therese's appointment, They tell the police that she booked an appointment to get tested for STDs and also to get a pap smear test done. The midwife made a comment in the booking that the patient had no signs that pointed to an STD. But what if she suspected that she was pregnant and she told Björn about it 
and that made him snap and kill her. I have no proofs of this theory, but the thought is intriguing. Or maybe she suspected him of cheating. Or maybe she had been with someone else. There are so many unanswered questions here. But let's go back to the house where several more notes are found. She wrote down her thoughts and feelings all the time, it seems. One note has several things listed. It goes like this. Lied. Manipulated me. Stole money for drugs. Kicked me. Threw me out. Said nasty things. Used me. Has secrets. Ignores me. And in the bottom of the list it says, Equals. Doesn't respect me. To understand Tidias better, let's look into her background a bit. Tidias Palmqvist is born on January 13, 1986. She grew up with a mother and a father and a younger brother named Karl in the village of Leksboda in Dalarna in the middle of Sweden. When she was in sixth grade, she had surgery on her back because of scoliosis. In middle school and high school, she had mostly male friends. She didn't really get to be a part of the girls' group in school. Her parents divorced when she was about 17 years old. But she had already moved out by then to attend school in another town. Her mother describes how she had anger issues during both her upbringing and her adult life. She went through a psychological evaluation when she was 16, but she was never diagnosed with anything. At the time of Therese's murder, she hadn't been in contact with her mother or her brother for about three years. The reason for this was her temper and her anger issues. The mother finally had enough and decided not to contact her anymore. Therese worked different jobs over the years. For a while she worked with caring for the elderly, and she also had her own company selling different hair products. But by the time she got murdered, she was working as a freelance translator, translating user manuals and similar documents from English to Swedish and the other way around. Therese met Björn Olsen when she was just seven years old. They were in the same class in school from grade one through six. After that, Therese changed schools, but they had sporadic contact over the years. And in the end of 2015, they became a couple. Therese is described by her friends and family as a very special person. She had a hard time with socializing with other people. She didn't understand how to interact with others in a normal manner. She also had a temper and could get furious at people over something others would consider nothing. The anger issues are what finally made her mother and brother step away from her. Therese was a very intelligent person. She was really good with computers and she even had her own laboratory at home and made different hair products from scratch. 
But she doesn't have a lot of friends, and anyone who knew her describes her as special and a little odd. As I said, Tideas worked from home and was translating instructions and manuals for different companies. She had several small translation jobs pending at the time of her death with a company in Bulgaria. The same night that she was killed, on November 20th, 2016, the Bulgarian company she worked with contacted her at 8pm and asked where the translation was. A couple of hours later, there was another email, again asking about the translation. After that, several emails are sent almost daily, begging her to contact them. At first, the tone in the emails are demanding and maybe a bit irritated. But after a couple of days, it's more like, Tereas, are you okay? Did anything happen? Please let me know that you are okay, and so on. It's creepy reading these emails when knowing that she was lying dead in the house while the emails were being sent to her. It's also a little scary that a business partner missed her and were worried about her only a couple of days after her death. But her own family and friends didn't report her missing until March four months after she died. But who was this man she was calling her boyfriend? Let's talk a little bit about Björn. Björn Olsen was born on December 4, 1986. His biological mother abused both drugs and alcohol and had mental problems, and he lived along with her during his first three years. Those three years are a very important period in a child's life. The bonding process is supposed to take place here, and the child builds up trust towards the parent. None of that probably happened during Björn's first three years. Björn also had an older sister on his father's side. She was born in 1981, and her name was Gry. Björn's father died only a few days before Björn was born. When Björn was about three years old, his mother had another baby, a little boy she named Thomas. But by then, social services was aware of the situation in the home, and both Björn and Thomas were placed in a foster home. The three years that Björn spent with his biological mother were tough. He was neglected and abused, and that created some deep scars in him. But moving to the foster family didn't make everything better as one would hope. The boys were not treated well. They were disciplined in a harsher way than the family's biological kids, and they never felt that they were part of the family. But that wasn't all. They were also abused and beaten. 
and it took several years before social services realized that they were abused and moved them again. But this time the boys were separated and ended up in different homes. Björn's younger brother, Thomas, says in an interview with a newspaper called Expressen that he thinks the first three years with a biological mother had a real bad impact on Björn. He also says that the first foster family managed to embezzle a large amount of money from Björn's biological father's inheritance. Money that could have made things easier for Björn when he became an adult. But the police investigation shows that the money wasn't embezzled. Björn got the money when he turned 18. I haven't been able to find out how much money we are talking about, though. Björn was bullied throughout his school years. When he was in middle school, he was allowed to stay inside in the classroom even during recess. And that's how he and Therese got to become friends. She was also allowed to stay in the classroom during recess due to her back problems. In his early teens, at about 13 or 14, Björn started hanging out with the wrong crowd, and it was at this time in his life that he started using drugs. By the time Therese and Björn became a couple, he was deep into his drug use. He took pills, he smoked things, and he also injected drugs. She somehow thought she could save him, bring back the sweet guy she used to know in school. Björn was also a violent person. He kicked and hit her several times. But she explained it away by saying that it wasn't him. It was the drugs talking. He was also very verbally abusing to her. In all her notes that was found in the house, and also in all the text messages retrieved from her friend Peter's phone, she always excuses his behavior. He was, of course, a wonderful partner between the abusive episodes. That is how an abusive relationship works. Let's make a timeline of the events around Therese's death and when she later was found. Therese was murdered on November 20th, 2016. That is what Björn later tells the police and also what the police can conclude from the evidence. Three days later, she is a no-show on the midwife appointment she had booked. On November 25th at 1.45pm, Therese's friend Peter wrote to her on Facebook Messenger. He said, Don't know if you got my text. I wonder when I can come over with my car. Therese replies, Oh, I... Right. We don't really know. Kind of busy right now. Peter replies, Okay, then I just call the shop instead. How's everything going? Therese replies, Everything is fine. And a smiley. But we know that that wasn't Therese who answered. It was Björn posing as her. And then on Christmas of 2016, 
She is contacted by her father and some friends. One of them is Peter. She doesn't answer her phone, but the phone seems to be turned on, since it doesn't go straight to voicemail. Several people text Merry Christmas to her, but no one gets a reply. On January 13, 2017, on what was supposed to be Therese's 31st birthday, several people text her and people also write congratulations on Facebook. No one gets a reply. On February 27th, Animal Protection get an anonymous tip about that the cats are being maltreated. On March 8th, they are contacted by another person who is worried about the cats. On March 9th, Teresa's father, the police, and animal protection goes to the house without seeing the cats or anyone in the house. On March 13th, Teresa is reported missing by her father. And also on March 13th, the police enter the house for the first time. Noticing a foul smell, but without finding anything. On March 20th, Teresa's father picks up the cats from the house, and on that day, the police consider Bjorn to be a person of interest in Teresa's disappearance. But they haven't been able to locate Bjorn yet. On March 27th, the police are back at the house again. This time they brought dogs. One detective later says that they never planned to bring the dogs inside the house. They just brought them to do a search outside. But one of the dogs clearly showed his handler that he wanted to go inside the house. And when they did, he went straight to the boiler room and alerted his handler. And that is when the body was found. It took until April 4th, 2017, at 12.30pm, before Björn Olsen was located and taken into custody. It takes Björn over seven months in custody before he starts to talk. Up until then, he had answered every question with, I don't know, I don't remember, or I have no idea. When he finally begins to talk, he tells the police about what happened that day, on November 20th, 2016. He and Therese had plans to go to a health convention that day. She was up and ready to go, and he had just got out of bed. He walks down to the basement and into the boiler room to light a fire in the furnace. Therese comes down and says something and he can tell that she is not happy with him. Remember, this is Björn's account of what happened that day. Therese is no longer with us to tell her side of the story. Just keep that in mind here. Björn says that she was obviously in a bad mood, 
And then he says something like, Do you have to bitch about everything? She gets upset because she doesn't like to be called a bitch. But he goes on to say to the detective that I didn't call her a bitch. I just asked if she had to bitch about everything. Anyways, according to Bjorn, Therese then grabs a plastic broom and hits him with it. There is a white plastic broom that is broken found in the house by the technicians. When she does this, he just snaps. And she has by then turned away from him and has her back to him. I guess she was about to leave. And then he hits her with what he is holding in his hands at the time. And that is an axe. He hits her more than once he reveals to the detective. But he cannot say how many times he lifts up the axe to strike her. But he keeps striking her when she's down on the floor. When she is dead, he panics and leaves the house. He brings a lot of stuff with him and goes to his brother's house. He tells his brother that he wants to keep the things there because he might go to prison. When asked why, he doesn't answer. But his brother knows that he commits petty crimes to finance his drug use. So it's not surprised by him saying that. Bjorn also says to the detectives that he had plans to turn himself in that day. But when he went to his brother's house, his brother's girlfriend and her kids were there. So he couldn't bring himself to say anything about what had happened. Bjorn is not really able to say exactly what he did in the coming days after Therese's death. But he left her body where she died, right outside the boiler room, and just threw a towel over her. But then he realizes that he has to move her body. So eight days after she died, on November 28th, he grabs her feet and drags her into the boiler room. He then covers her body with a rug and he also places pieces of cardboard around her body, almost like a casket. He also says later that he had to borrow, and yes, that is the word he used, borrow some of the cardboard pieces to light a fire in the furnish. That's why some of the pieces are missing. When Therese was alive, she was the only one working and bringing in money. The only thing Bjorn did was help people with their cars. And sometimes he got money for it. But usually they paid him by bringing him some beer or snooze. You remember snooze, that tobacco product that Swedes use a lot. Anyway, now since Therese was gone and the money stopped coming in, Bjorn had to find a way to support himself. But he isn't the most honest person, as we already know. It is established that Bjorn had been using Therese's mobile phone after she was dead. He used it to log on to places. For example, transfer the ownership of Therese's car over to himself. He also attempted to get ownership of the house that Therese owned but he wasn't successful in that attempt. Bjorn also had contact via text with the couple who rented Therese's house, 
He texted them and asked them for the rent money. And the detectives can see that he logged into Teresa's bank account shortly before the text was sent and then again shortly thereafter. When the couple who is renting the house makes a payment of 5,000 kronor, that's about $500. The same amount is withdrawn from the bank account shortly thereafter. This is on March 2nd, about three and a half months after Therese was killed. When looking through the bank statements, there are two more payments for December and January that has also been paid and then withdrawn by Björn. During the investigation, it is also revealed that Björn tried to sell things like iPhones and stuff on an auction site online. When someone won the bid, they were asked to transfer money to Therese's account. But after transferring the money, they never got the phone. The reason Björn was able to pull this scam off was because he used Therese's account on the auction site. She had been selling things for years there and had always handled her transactions correctly. So she had an excellent recommendation on the site. It kind of works like this. Every time you sell or buy something on the auction site, you can grade the buyer or the seller with up to five stars and also write a review. If a seller has excellent ratings, people trust that seller. And this is exactly what Björn used to pull his scam off. People trusted Therese's account, and Björn emailed with the buyers from Therese's email account, signing the emails with her name. The iPhone scam was done several times before the account on the auction site was closed down. So this is how Björn got his money after Therese was killed and no longer paid his bills. One other interesting thing that the police found when going through all the evidence was that on August 3rd, 2016, a request for approval of marriage was issued. It's a document you have to get before you can marry someone. The authorities make sure that both persons who wants to get married are not already married to someone else, or that they are not siblings or in another way closely related to each other. On September 1st, Therese buys two silver rings in a jewelry store. The rings are made out of sterling silver and cost about $30 each. But they never got married. After Björn told his side of the story about what happened on that November day when Therese died, the question that remains is why. I guess we will never get a definite answer to that. But Björn says that he hadn't taken his medications that day, and that was why he lost his temper. And I just want to clarify, 
that what he means by taking his medications has nothing to do with prescribed medications. He is talking about the drugs he used to self-medicate. The trial started in January of 2018, and during the trial, several things are revealed. One of the things that came out was that Björn had been abusive to a former girlfriend, and he even hit her in the head with an axe at one time. That time he used the non-sharp side of the axe, and she got a concussion but survived the attack. That relationship had been filled with violence and substance abuse on both sides. She said that she got beaten almost every day during the relationship. After all the evidence against Björn is presented, he is on February 23, 2018, sentenced of the second-degree murder of Therese Palmqvist to 16 years in prison. The reason he wasn't convicted of first-degree murder is that this wasn't premeditated. He never planned to kill her. It just happened in a state of rage. He should also pay 178,000 kronor, that's about $18,000, to Therese's family. Thank you so much for listening to Therese Palmqvist's story. Before we get over to the next segment, I want to thank the following new Patreons. Thank you to Hannah W., Bree K., Leslie S., and Jeanette K. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. And all of you out there, do you know that you can get the episodes ad-free on Patreon? And at the same time, support the show. Head over to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden if you want to join. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for True Crime Sweden. You can also join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook if you want to discuss the cases further. But now, it's time to get over to the fun fact part of the podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about something called Saturday candy. Or as we say in Sweden, Lördags godis. In the end of the 1950s, Sweden started introducing the Saturday candy thing to parents everywhere. The thought was that it should only be allowed for kids to eat candy once a week, and that should be on Saturdays. The reason for this, of course, was health issues, and also the fact that eating sweets ruin your teeth. Sweden had made an experiment between 1945 and 1955 in a southern city called Lund. The experiments had taken place at a mental hospital called Vipeholm. This whole experiment is so dark. And just reading about what they did to people back then, it's horrible. The Vipeholm Mental Hospital was a national hospital that took care of men who, and I quote now, were hard to handle, couldn't be educated, and feeble-minded or slow. 
The experiments consisted of two groups. One group just ate the regular food that was served in the hospital, while the other group were given special made toffees that were really chewy and stayed in the mouth for a very, very long time. Of course, the group who was given candy all the time got serious problems with their teeth. This experiment or study had an important impact on tooth health and how caries occurs. But the way it was carried out got a lot of criticism later on. Today, there is an ethic committee that evaluates all experiments or studies before they get the go-ahead. Thank God for that. The people who were subjected to this experiment, their teeth either fell out or they got rotten. For most of them, this whole ordeal was really painful. If you ever had toothache, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, that is how people started referring to Saturday candy. Still today, the kids get their Saturday candy. Most kids only get candy one day a week, and that's on Saturdays. Of course, there are exceptions, like when there's a birthday party on a Sunday or something. When my kids were younger, we always went to the store to buy candy on Saturdays. It was like the week's highlight. And after we had paid for the candy, they were allowed to eat one piece of candy right there in the store. The rest of the candy I ate. No, I'm just kidding. The rest of the candy they got to eat after dinner on Saturday night. Maybe I should mention that almost all grocery stores in Sweden have candy that you pick and mix yourself. It's not wrapped or in a bag or anything. You use a plastic spoon to get the candy that you like and put it in a candy bag. And then you pay by weighing your bag at the checkout. I love this way of buying candy. It means I don't have to get a whole bag of something that I just want one or two pieces of. The only downside of this is when you start filling your bag, it's like, oh, I'm just going to get a few of these and a few of those. And all of a sudden, your bag is full. You always end up buying more candy than you planned. All this talk about candy makes me realize that I have to go to the store tonight and get me some. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye! Hey-do!